Previous to the pandemic, there were anywhere from 15 to 20 requests for military assistance to respond to domestic disasters. Between March 2020 and October of 2022, there was somewhere to the tune of 175. Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. I'm Scotty Greenwood with Canadian American Business Council, and I'm joined by my fabulous colleague, Chris Sands of the Wilson Center. Hey, Chris, how you doing? I'm great. Nice to see you, Scotty. Back on Canusa Street. Back on Canusa Street. And Chris, a topic that we've talked about a lot, um, but it continues to be important, are the wildfires that are absolutely burning in Canada. And so we're going to have a broader conversation today, but I'm excited to, to invite our guest today from Team Rubicon, which is you'll describe and he'll describe what they, they do, but they are a volunteer organization that brings military veterans into community service, and they're currently working on the wildfires, I think, in Nova Scotia. So we'll talk to Paul McCarthy about that. But before we get there, why don't I turn it over to you to introduce him? Thanks very much, Scotty. And this is an exciting guest. Paul McCarthy is the vice chair of Team Rubicon in Canada. Um, He has more than 25 years of professional experience, including time as a political operative, a public servant and as a private sector advisor and manager. In his 20 years with the Canadian federal government, he's worked in the departments of industry, environment, labor, housing, and homelessness, as well as border services, just to name some of the the departments our listeners will be quite familiar with. Now, while working at Veterans Affairs, he led the reconfiguration of financial benefits for veterans and the redesign of support services for Canadian Armed Forces members as they transition out of the military. The work resulted in unprecedented new investments and provided financial security for significantly more families. Paul has been an active supporter of Team Rubicon Canada, and I'll let him talk to us a little bit about that since its inception, and he's currently the vice chair of the organization. He's originally from St. John's, Newfoundland. Very nice to have you from St. John's and uh, has a Bachelor of Arts from Memorial University in political science and business, but he lives in Ottawa now. Paul, welcome. This is great to have you. Well, thanks so much for having me. This is wonderful. Excellent. Paul and I just met through a mutual friend of ours, Marlene Floyd in Ottawa. And and the moment I heard about the mission of the organization, I said, you know, it would be great for you to share that with uh, Canusa Street because there is a Canada-US story to be told and it's quite compelling. So, Paul, uh, Chris mentioned it a little bit, but can you talk um, about Team Rubicon and how, you know, what it's all about and how you got involved? Oh, certainly. And so, um, you know, you're right when you say that it very much is a, a Canada-U.S. story. Um, Team Rubicon actually launched in the United States in 2010 uh, when a couple of military veterans uh, decided that they wanted to respond to the earthquakes in Haiti. Um, they decided they wanted to try and go over and help, do what they could. And through that effort was born the whole idea of Team Rubicon. And so Team Rubicon is an organization that effectively leverages the skill sets and experiences of, of veterans to respond to disasters and, and humanitarian crises as well. Um, and that organization has grown today, so launched in 2010. Today, they are an organization of over 100 full-time employees. Uh, they've uh, conducted, I believe, somewhere around 1,100 missions and they have an annual budget of about $50 million, just to give you kind of the, the size of the organization and, and the impact they would have. T- 
Team Rubicon Canada. So, you know, um, I like to say that uh, great ideas don't have borders. Certainly that's the case here. Team Rubicon Canada launched in 2016. Uh, and the first mission that uh, we did here was in 2016 in response to the wildfires in northern Saskatchewan and Alberta. Now, uh, people will probably remember that that was the one that really decimated and effectively took out Fort McMurray. Um, and in fact, I was just chatting with a, a friend recently who reminded me that that fire actually burned for 18 months, which is really incredible when you think about it, um, before, it was, before it was officially uh, extinguished. Um, but that was Team Rubicon Canada's first mission. And what we did there was actually quite unique. Uh, and I like to use this example simply because it does demonstrate the versatility of the organization. And, and while we have a lot of core competencies that we can talk about what we do, um, this just demonstrates um, the, the breadth of, of things that Team Rubicon can actually do to help communities. So on that mission, we went in and sifted through the debris of, of homes uh, and helped people find items of personal value. So we were able to do that because we've got the equipment, we donned the hazmat suits, we've got the proper training to actually do that in a very safe uh, way. And what's unique about that is, you know, you think about all the things that happen when a disaster like this strikes a community, and people, of course, are concerned about emergency shelter, emergency food, emergency clothing, um, <clears throat> but there are so many things that need to be done and that can be helpful to people um, who are trying to literally pick back up the pieces of their lives. And this is such an ex great example of, of something that who else would be able to do something like that? Well, and when you've lost everything in a, a fire, all your belongings in, in the world, to be able to maybe find that one memento that's going to that's gonna be something that you hang on to, the artifact, that's that's meaningful for the for the people who've gone through it, but I have to believe it's also meaningful for these veterans who um, have served our countries. They've served in war. They come back home and they're looking for the next really big important thing to do. So I, I just I just love I love what you're doing, Paul. I think it's an amazing amazing mission. Well, you know, you're, you're echoing my sentiments exactly, and you know, you asked how how I became involved. Um, at the time, I was the director of policy to the Minister of Veterans Affairs and the Associate Minister of National Defense. And I was accompanying the minister uh, to a luncheon with, um, at the time, Ambassador Bruce Heyman and his wife, Vicky. And uh, at the end of the lunch, um, Vicky Heyman asked me if I'd ever heard of an organization named Team Rubicon. And I, I said, of course, no. She explained to me what it was that they did. And I was immediately taken by it because... At the time, we had a fairly aggressive new policy agenda that we were we were working to um, put together and implement. Um, but you know, there's there's only so much that you can do to help people. So financially is obviously very important. Helping people transition uh, successfully out, out uh, into civilian life is is also very important. But when you think about what uh, people miss when they move out of the forces. Everybody talks about it. It's the sense of purpose, the sense of being a part of a team, the the sense of being a part of a mission, right. being with your comrades and and taking on something and, and seeing it through to fruition, and and the fulfillment that you get from that, and how good it is for your own kind of uh, sense of value and sense of worth and, and your mental health, and that's something that you know nobody can really give you. And I thought immediately, wow, this is such wonderful thing for those for that side of the you know for that side of the equation so to speak and um and it, it actually is quite true the volunteers love this work uh they um so we always talk about a dual uh um 
purpose of mission. You're helping the people uh, in these communities, but of course, the volunteers also get something out of it. Uh, I was going to ask Paul. I mean, how do you how do you choose when to get involved? Is it something where there's someone on the ground? I think about federal disaster uh, declarations by a president or a governor, sometimes at the state level here in the U.S. But how how do you get involved? Does somebody call you? Is there a bat signal for Team Rubicon? Something like that. Uh, a great question. And it's really a bit of a, it's a conversation, open conversation. So first and foremost, I would just state that we do not go where we are not invited. The last thing that anybody needs in a disaster situation are people who are there to help, but there's no specified role and there's no, uh, you know, plan to incorporate that into the response, right? Um, and so it's a combination of us reaching out and others inviting us in. And so maybe a good opportunity to talk about uh, what's happening in Nova Scotia currently, um, because we were invited in uh, and um, uh, the Halifax municipality invited us to go in and we are currently conducting a mission there. Uh, in terms of total volunteers, it's, it's our biggest mission to date. I believe we're, we're somewhere around 100 uh, volunteers and we are doing um, uh, debris removal, sifting operations, uh, spontaneous volunteer management. And of course, we've got an incident command center set up there. Uh, and we're specifically helping the people of Tantalon. So um, for those listening, that's um, a community that was really uh, hit hard by the wildfires. Uh, approximately 150 homes lost to those fires. Wow, that's incredible. I guess I have another question on the other side, which is how does someone perhaps been in the forces, wants to get involved with you. How do, how do you find your volunteers? Do you call them? Do they call you? Or if someone's listening and says, hey, I'd like to get involved, what what do they do? So that's that's exactly right. They they reach out to us, and so you know part of this is about building awareness that we're that we're out there, that we're uh, here to help, and that um, we're here to be a part of as well for those who who want to volunteer. So. Um, we are currently in Canada, about 3,000 volunteers strong and growing. Uh, of course, we are in regular contact with, you know, the, the usual kind of people who play in the space. And so, uh, you know, the Canadian Armed Forces are well aware of our existence, as are all the um, uh, emergency management uh, offices throughout the country, which are um, uh, first and foremost provincially managed. And then, of course, these responses take place at a local level, so at the municipal uh, level as well. Um, and... Um, uh, so we take in people who reach out to us and we proactively reach out to others and, and ask them if they're interested in, in uh, helping out. And we have, a, you know, predominantly veterans, but uh, veterans of the military, but also veterans of uh, other first responding uh, disciplines and, and what we like to lovingly refer to as kick-ass civilians. <laughs> Excellent. Um, and, and my last question, or at least for this set, I, I wonder how does the cross-border piece work? Um, you know, famously, Rubicon refers to the river that Julius Caesar crossed and then was committed to go all the way to Rome. But um, but borders do matter, whether they're river or not. And I have a flashback memory to Hurricane Katrina and the debates we had here in the U.S. about us receiving Canadian help 
um, and were the guys who were going to put the the line, the power lines back up, were they certified in Louisiana? Were they allowed to do the work? And it was a huge thing that the governments were really trying to address. Is there a is there a protocol that allows the volunteers to cross the border, or do you keep them mainly on one side or the other, depending on the circumstances? So that's a great question. And so first and foremost, I'll just say there, these two organizations are standalone. Obviously, there's a very tight-knit relationship between the two, <clears throat> but they are standalone organizations. Um, you know, during the, uh, during the pandemic, um, we had an issue where, uh, because we do cooperate, and so I would just probably state at the outset, Canadian volunteers participate in in U.S. missions and vice versa, and you know that's good for a whole host of reasons because um, it helps each organization grow their capacity and their experience and their skill sets. You know, the more you're participating on these missions, the more you learn, the more you kind of bring on board your own organization. But during the pandemic, um, there, we actually were presented with uh, this challenge in that borders were shut down. And our CEO, Brian Riddell, uh, reached out to the provincial government of Ontario, their, their emergency management office, to see, um, you know, what was going on with this and, and could we actually kind of open the doors to the border for, uh, these emergency, for these, uh, Team Rubicon volunteers to come assist on some of the missions that we were planning at the time. And it was actually through those efforts that it actually got unlocked because, um, they started talking to the feds about this. Um, and as it turns out, um, you know, their interpretation of the policy was such that it did allow for this to happen. It just wasn't happening at the time. So they agreed to, uh, to reach out to border services to, uh, I'll brief them and allow them to know that they had make, taken this interpretation of the policy and that was permitted. Uh, and through those efforts, it kind of unlocked, uh, the, the ability to cross the border. And, um, and, and that resulted in us having people uh, on missions that were really needed. Well, so this is interesting. Um, I, we're going to take a little break here, but when we come back, Paul, I want to talk to you about the relationship between what people expect of our military um, and in the U.S. of FEMA, Federal Emergency Management Agency, and a volunteer organization such as yours. So we'll be right back. Are you red, white, and blue or just red and white? Beaver or bald eagle? Ryan Reynolds or J-Lo? Canusa Street, a masterclass in cross-border relations. This is where Canada and the United States intersect on the policies and issues of our two great nations. But you know that already. That's why you're here. The question is, if you want more of this bilateral bonanza delivered directly to your inbox, and you know you do, how about signing up for Scotty Greenwood's weekly email updates on Canada-US relations? Head to cabc.co to sign up today. And now back to Canusa Street. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everyone. I'm Christopher Sands. We have Scotty Greenwood here, and we're speaking today to Paul McCarthy, Vice Chair at Team Rubicon Canada. And it's not the... I think there's a government relations firm called Rubicon Canada. This is a different one, if uh, people are curious. This is a volunteer organization. And Paul, you know, I'm interested in your thoughts about the relationship between what societies expect of our military. You know, in the U.S., um, we really think of our military as being deployed overseas and in foreign areas. Um, but, but also when they're, they're, they're so capable and, you know, our militaries know how to build bridges and how to rescue people and do all of these things. 
What, how do you think about the relationship between a volunteer organization like yours in the U.S. and Canada that's former military um, and the missions and the requirements and the requests that come in uh, to active duty military and, and also emergency management services north and south of the border? How do you think about all those things? Uh, you know, you're really putting your your finger on a salient issue right now, and this has been uh, quite a debate happening, certainly on this side of the border for for quite some time. Back in the late summer, early fall of 2022, our the House Commons Committee uh, was was having this exact debate. Um, it's interesting. the The head of the Government Operations Center um, was testifying, and he he made the point that. Uh, previous to uh, the pandemic, so let's call it up to March 2020, there were anywhere from 15 to 20 requests for um, military assistance to respond to uh, domestic disasters. Between March 2020 and October of 2022, so about an 18-month span, uh, there was somewhere to the tune of 175 requests. So obviously, uh, quite quite an increase. And you know, it's it's a challenge because obviously, um, you know, when Canadians are in need, uh, government needs to respond, and the Canadian Armed Forces are are quite that um, able and capable force, and certainly just in terms of sheer capacity, right? But you've touched on it, Scotty, and that is as soon as you start putting people into something other than what their core mandate is, you start to compromise their ability to actually uh, achieve that mandate. And it's it's a very kind of salient ongoing debate because how do you handle that? Especially as these uh, events happen with more and more frequency and more and more severity and require a bigger response. And so it, it, it's a challenge. And I would say this, Team Rubicon Canada is certainly capable of responding to a number of these things. We obviously do not have the size and the capacity of the Canadian Armed Forces, but you're talking about um, the same skill sets. We're the same people. Um, And so provided that the scope of the mission is not too large, um, these are things that an organization like ours could take on. And so I would say that perhaps Team Rubicon Canada is actually part of the solution moving forward. Is it the entire solution? No, but it's certainly part of the solution. and, you know, it's, it's, it's tough because um, you don't want to compromise that ability to deploy over uh, overseas or in other arenas to pursue the, uh, the policy objectives of the government uh, through the Canadian Armed Forces. Um, uh, Paul, one one question that comes to mind. Scotty and I both have uh, a little side interest where we raise money for different things. And so I guess maybe this is a softball question, but if if our listeners are you know hearing about the work that you do and they want to get involved, they want to maybe contribute financially to support the work that you do, is that easy? Can they do so on your website? And yeah, absolutely. So they, they can donate through our website. That's a simple thing. They can also volunteer through our website or put it, let's say they can raise their hand to be uh, to have someone reach out to them to, to, to determine whether or not they'd actually make a great volunteer. And so um, that's simply through our website. And do, and do those contributions make up the bulk of your budget or, or is there government support? I know you have volunteers, but it takes a, it takes a village to pull these things together. So I know you have a lot of people. Absolutely. Well, our business model allows us to run fairly lean. Um, at the moment, we're just around 10 full-time employees. Uh, we're at a cadence of about 15 missions per year. Um, and um, we 
get our funding through individual contributions, through corporate sponsorship, through foundation sponsorship. Uh, we do have some one-time uh, government money, which is wonderful, um, and uh, programs that we were able to apply for because we, we met the eligibility criteria. Um, but yeah, any any support that we can receive specifically from individuals or, or uh, corporate sponsors would be um, uh, wonderful. And, um, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to quote you in terms of percentage here, but um, we do run lean and, and, and the model allows us to do so because effectively... We're until we're actually in field, until we're actually conducting a mission, you know, all that force that we have behind us through our volunteer network, that's that's actually just kind of laying to the side. There's there's no cost to that, right? That's amazing. Paul and I were talking about this the other day. I mean, in, if I got to design the world, all of those returning veterans would have an opportunity to enter a service program and actually get paid for it. So it, w- it would become a job, um, you know, the job that you do after you retire. Um but 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 anyway, that's a that's a longer term that's a longer term thing. And Chris, apparently, I don't get to design the universe. It's it's a it's an unfortunate reality. We're working on it, Scotty. Right now, you've got Canusa Street. Tomorrow, the world. If you wouldn't mind, could I go back on a just one point? I just want to make sure. a, one other point about this whole conversation about um, you know the Canadian Armed Forces uh, responding. The other thing that I would say is that you know what Team Rubicon does is actually, in, in my humble opinion, a better vehicle to respond. And I'll give you an example. Um, in uh, I believe it was September-ish of, of 2022 um, when Fiona hit the east coast of Canada, and again Nova Scotia uh, and PEI. And Team Rubicon was actually first on the ground there. And um, at the invitation of Nova Scotia Power, we were first out helping them uh, clear away the debris to open up critical routes again. Um, and we continued to conduct uh, many missions, both in Nova Scotia and PEI, uh, in response to that storm. But at one point, we were actually conducting a mission and we were actually shoulder to shoulder with the Canadian Armed Forces, who were also there to respond. And we were clearing away uh, debris. And we had finished the, the, that specific job and, um, we were on a street and we were adjacent to a number of homes that had downed trees. Now we were able to actually just walk up to those doors, knock, knock on the door and say, we can remove this, these hazards from your property if you'd like us to free of charge. And of course the, the homeowner said yes. The Canadian Armed Forces can't do that. They don't have the flexibility to do things like that. Um, and it's also worth noting that, you know, the, the people that we have in the field, they are trained specifically to do the task that they're there to do. So in this instance, they would be, uh, it's what we call uh, chainsaw teams. And they have very specific training to be able to do all that. Now, the Canadian Armed Forces does have the ability to do these things, but, you know, specific training is important. It's amazingly dangerous work. I don't know if people are really picturing in their minds right now what happens after a devastating storm. But when when the trees are blocking the roads and they're bringing power lines down, it's hazardous. And you can't, you know, imagine your grandmother is stuck and doesn't have power, has no way to get to the store, um, and can't walk in the front yard. I mean, these are, this is quite... Um, these are real every day in the moment. I need help. Um, and so I think it's just wonderful to have somebody that can show up and say, we, we can help you. And by the way, we can do it safely because, you know, you really don't want to just hand a chainsaw to somebody who's never operated one. 
Absolutely. And that's that's a key part of our value add in that, um, you know, we plan out these missions and before we press go, everything has been kind of lined up and buttoned down so that when we're in the field, we're doing precisely what we're there to do with people uh, who are trained to do precisely that. So, but Paul, just a quick one and then we'll wrap. Why can't you, you in, in the story that you just told, why can't the military knock on your door and say, Mrs. McGillicuddy, I'm here and I'd be happy to clear your driveway. What, why can you do that and they can't? Uh, you know, we're a lot more nimble in that um, we have the flexibility because we're not constrained by orders and we're not constrained by that type of specific scope. Well, that of makes work. sense. You don't just freelance, I guess, when you're a corporal in the armed services and say, hey, I think I'm. this is what I'm going to do this afternoon. Good point. You got it. You got it. You follow orders and orders are fairly specific. So, uh, you know, in that in that regard, I would say that um, the vehicle that we have is, is probably more designed to actually do this work. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. You know, um, I know we're getting ready to wrap up, but I wouldn't mind making an, another point, which is really speaking to why it makes so much sense for this model. Um, and, and this is part of the reason why it really resonated with me when I heard about the organization. And that is, um, the, and this, this, this stands true for both Canada and the U.S., you know, the Canadian government uh, spends billions of dollars training these people, and they spend, you know, years and years and years and decades earning all that training. And so when they actually leave the military, they don't just hand in that skill set and that ability when they hand in their fatigues. They have that with them. And these people then are, you know, throughout our, our, uh, throughout the country. So that is a, a major kind of capital human resource that's just laying dormant. Why not activate it when it's needed? And and some of the attributes that they get while serving are just so well suited to this work. You know, it, it, it's, it's really important to note that being good at being trained is a thing. It's a skill set. Right. And these people are actually quite good at being trained. And so we provide training because it has to be specific to, to what they're going out in the field to do. And the other thing is that they also are quite good at bringing calm and organization to an area hit by chaos. And those two things are kind of intangibles, but they make they make the models so perfect for um, for what's being required and what's being asked of them. Well, it's a, it's really a beautiful um, a beautiful effort and and a wonderful story of hope and community service at a time when uh, when when we really need it. Uh, so so Paul, thank you so much for for telling us the story of Team Rubicon and Chris. Thanks for mentioning how to get involved. We'll we will put that in the show notes. And um, anyway, I, I love this conversation. Thanks so much for having me. This has been wonderful. Excellent. I, I enjoyed the conversation too, Paul. I really hope that you're able to get the word out, maybe get some more volunteers and uh, keep come back and tell us about your next big success stories because uh, need to keep you in the public eye. Wonderful. Thanks again. You know, it's really great to have uplifting stories, Chris, and, and I think the mental health of our veterans when they return um, from intense serious uh, positions overseas and then they come back and are trying to figure out what to do next. I just think this this idea of volunteering for disaster relief makes makes a whole lot of sense. I'm so glad we got to hear about it. Yeah, absolutely. It, it not only adds a sense of continued public service for, for our veterans, but also something close to home. And you hear in the U.S. stories of people who careers take them to the National Guard because of this kind of emergency response work. Um, we're just lucky not to lose 
all that training and all that know-how, but most importantly, that desire for service and, and help neighbors helping neighbors. It's, it's a great story, and I really hope it, uh, it spreads imitators and we can get more people involved. Yeah, absolutely, and, and you know, these, these fires in Canada are, are, are historic and they're devastating. Maybe something else we can put in the show notes is the New York Times story about the French firefighters that were in Quebec. Um, and have never seen anything like the boreal forest on fire in their lives. Um, so so we'll, we'll link that as well. But any, anyway, Chris, always good to see you on Canusa Street, my friend. Always good to see you too. And, and I'm, uh, I'm worried that we'll have more stories like this because we'll have more crises because of climate change and the way in which uh, natural disasters are becoming more frequent. So uh, let's hope for good weather on Canusa Street for now. But uh, we'll come back as, as things get worse. That's right. Thanks a lot. See you soon. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.